next discussant is Dr. Diane Janowitz. She's uh, assistant professor of medicine at Indiana University and will be discussing the persistent challenges of HIV transmission control in injection drug use and will provide us uh, lessons from the front lines, politically and <laughs> medically speaking, lessons from the Indiana outbreak. Diana. Thank you. So as HIV experts, I think we are each very well aware of the HIV outbreak that occurred in Indiana uh, just over a year ago. It's also quite fortunate that to date, this has not manifested itself as the canary in the coal mine that many of us predicted it would be. But this remains a cautionary tale given the epidemic of injection drug use that we're experiencing in our country today. So today what I'd like to do is take you through how this outbreak evolved and really highlight the massive response that was undertaken by so many different partners in order to contain the outbreak. But before I delve into the details of that, what I'd like to do is to start with the story of a patient uh, in the context of this HIV care continuum. So Mr. B because what it will, will help do is, is simply highlight the many different opportunities as well as some of the challenges that we as providers faced when we were trying to uh, contain this outbreak in a very rural setting. So Mr. B was the very first patient who I saw on the first HIV clinic day uh, that we instituted under the emergency order that our governor declared. So Mr. B is in his 30s. He achieved a fifth grade education and had recently lost his job. With little hope for much else and being surrounded by a lot of family and friends who injected drugs because that was a very prominent practice in his community, he started injecting and ultimately was named as a high-risk contact of someone who had recently tested positive. So he underwent testing and was diagnosed with HIV. A social worker came to his house and signed him up for insurance and told him about an HIV clinic where he could come and get treated. And so he actually decided that that's something that he was going to do. So he came into clinic believing that his HIV diagnosis gave him about a year or two to live. And he wanted to make the most of that, so he decided he was going to quit injecting drugs. And so the day that I saw him, that first day, uh, he was already withdrawing and we had a lot of discussion that we had to go through in order to really emphasize the prognosis that he had with his uh, disease. We drew screening labs and I thought I'd made a, a really good impact on him that he was going to show up for his next clinic appointment. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, after those screening labs were back, he didn't come for his appointment uh, the following week. Uh, but very luckily, the nurse uh, in the clinic where we were using borrowed space came around the corner and said, you know what, he's not here, his mom died, he's at the funeral. So she had this really unique inside knowledge that she was able to help us really follow and engage, continue to engage some of the patients who we saw in care. And so he showed up the following week, and with him came his wife, who was unbelievably knowledgeable, and she was not HIV infected, she came to ask about PrEP. And I didn't have to have a discussion with her. She had done so much research. She led the discussion and told me exactly what she needed and what she wanted. And I prescribed her PrEP. Um, and then I prescribed uh, Mr. B his antiretroviral medication. Unfortunately, I didn't see them, uh, either of them, for quite some time. But to come full circle, and this is why I chose this patient's story, he showed up to the last clinic day. And he was the last patient, along with his wife, who I saw, 
um, on that day. She remained HIV negative and he was undetectable uh, with respect to his viral load. He'd gone through drug rehab rehabilitation and had been clean for 30, 30 days at that point. So this is really the full circle, uh, fantastic story that we would like for all of our patients, but it's certainly not the one that we heard for all of them, and I'll highlight some of the challenges that we're still facing in order to be able to achieve that. So I always think it's important to know where you're coming from, and so let's start at the very beginning. And so this is the map of HIV infection uh, infections that we had uh, for Indiana just prior to the outbreak. So in 2014, at the end of that year, we had approximately 12,500 people who were living in Indiana with HIV or AIDS. The majority of these people lived in, uh, in urban areas, so in northwest Indiana here, which is immediately adjacent to Chicago, um, and then in central Indiana in Indianapolis, which is our state capital. The outbreak that occurred, however, occurred in a rural area about 80 miles southeast of Indianapolis in Scott County. It's a small uh, county and historically they see very few people who are HIV infected and actually over a 10 year period had only seen five people who were diagnosed with HIV infection. The epicenter of the outbreak is Austin, Indiana. This is a small one stoplight kind of town. If you squint, you can actually see some railroad tracks and just beyond that is where the one stoplight is. This is a picture of downtown Austin. Um, there is a dentist who's there maybe once a week. There's a pizza parlor and this is also where the one uh, clinic is in town. About 4,000 people live in Austin, Indiana and they uh, experience quite a few challenges, both from an economic as well as a social standpoint. So many people are unemployed. A significant proportion of the population lives well below the poverty, federal poverty line, and one in five people do not graduate from high school. Furthermore, uh, Scott County, which is where Austin is located, is ranked 92nd out of 92 counties in Indiana in life expectancy and various other social and economic factors. So when we put all these uh, challenges and social determinants together with the very large population of people who inject drugs who live in Scott County, you can see that this was nearly the perfect storm for an HIV outbreak as such uh, occurred in, in Austin. So it's estimated that there are approximately 500 people who share uh, syringes and inject drugs in Scott County. The injection practices of the people who inject drugs there are really quite unique and somewhat dictated by the social determinants that exist um, in Austin. So this is a multi-generational practice in, in Scott County. Because of so many of the economic hardships, you have extended, family, extended families living together. So you'll have children, parents, grandparents, and sometimes you'll even have neighbors who've lost their homes move into that same house. So you may have eight to 10 people living in one very small home and when one person starts injecting drugs, it becomes almost nearly natural uh, for the rest of the family members, um, no matter what generation they're in, to continue that practice and all inject together. That also lowered the uh, threshold barrier for people to uh, practice safe injection practices um, because they didn't fear or didn't think that family members uh, would have communicable diseases. On average, people who are HIV diagnosed with HIV infection during this outbreak named a total of nine high-risk uh, contacts who needed to be tested because through various exposure routes remained at risk for acquisition of HIV. 
in this multi-generational practice of injecting drugs, people often shared uh, equipment as well. So not only the syringes and needles, but often the cookers. Um, and they also shared drugs because the drug of choice in Scott County is oxymorphone. So very rarely would we see reports of people injecting heroin um, or methamphetamine. And so oxymorphone was reformulated in 2012 to deter abuse potential. Uh, unfortunately, instead of snorting, people found a way to um, crush and inject uh, this particular drug, and it's shown here on the right. So it was certainly more difficult to crush and, and, and dissolve, but people use larger volumes of water and larger bore needles. Uh, it gives a fixed, albeit short, high. Uh, so people would inject multiple times per day to abrogate um, that um, obvious uh, withdrawal symptoms that would, would naturally precipitate. So the outbreak began in December of 2014 when a, a physician from a neighboring town was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing and screening people for HIV. So a pregnant female and then one other person who was high risk who'd been tested before. Uh, he diagnosed two people very close together and knew based on the epidemiology of HIV in Scott County from historic levels that that was a lot, two HIV infections in one time period. And then there was a really astute DIS officer who was uh, working with those, those um, first few cases and was able to connect two of them as needle sharing partners and subsequently followed up on eight um, new contacts who were named, all of whom were diagnosed with HIV infection. And that snowballed such that in late February, our State Department of Health alerted the CDC, who by the very beginning of March was on the ground with massive numbers of DIS officers and other people who were helping with this outbreak, um, going door to door and tracing all the contacts who'd so far been named in order to offer HIV testing. Within only a few weeks, our governor declared a public health emergency because it was at that point that there were 55 confirmed cases and 13 preliminary cases. Throughout the entire outbreak, there was not a single preliminary case who was uh, demonstrated to be a false positive. So all preliminary cases ultimately tested positive for HIV infection. And this is how the epidemic curve evolved. So we saw the most number of cases being diagnosed in March and April, and that's because that's when the most amount of testing was being done. And over time, as fewer and fewer contacts who were named remained to be tested, the curve fell off. And ultimately, in July is when we finally saw the first few weeks when we, saw, when we had no new cases of HIV infection being diagnosed. So in the end, the public health emergency order ended in June. And at that time, there were a total of 170 people out of that estimated 500 who were injection drug users who were diagnosed with HIV infection. People had been offered point-of-care testing um, in the field, and they had simultaneous blood draws, not only for HIV, but also for syphilis, as well as hepatitis C. No contacts remained to be traced as of the end of that public health emergency order, and that resulted in, of those people who tested positive, a 38% positivity rate. If we estimate that approximately 80% of the people who are diagnosed with HIV infection live in Austin, that translates to a prevalence rate of nearly 5%, which is just astronomically high compared to any, any other, certainly rural county, but even some urban areas um, that we see here in the United States. 
There's ongoing and continued surveillance of all high-risk individuals. So all those people who are high-risk negatives, if you will, re um, are offered testing on a repeated base basis every three months. And because of that, we've identified additional new, new infections, and, and the official number is now at 188 as of this month, um, although there are a few more people who have been diagnosed, so this official number will increase in the future. So the people who are HIV infected in Austin are young, they're 34, and the age range actually is very reflective of that multi-generational injection drug use practice that we see in the county. Matching national demographics, about 58% of the people are, are male um, and the rest female, so certainly not much of a, a, a discrimination uh, um, between the sexes. And also consistent with the demographics of Austin, 100% are non-Hispanic white. 92% are co-infected with hepatitis C, um, so certainly the talk before mine and then after are very relevant, um, and you'll learn a lot more about the drugs that um, we ultimately will hopefully be using to treat the hepatitis C epidemic in Austin as well. Of those who are HIV infected, only a couple uh, had been, uh, had, or were on uh, health insurance, and so everybody else was enrolled in the expanded uh, Indiana Medicaid program that's available. And over 95% of the people who are HIV infected uh, live very, very well below uh, the federal poverty line, earning less than $10,000 a year. So Romeo Galong and some of his colleagues from the CDC did a really nice phylogenetic analysis of the first 57 uh, HIV polymerase sequences and demonstrated essentially one really big cluster that had 97, 98% identity, um, and essentially confirming that it was the introduction of one HIV infection into this very large, tight network of injection uh, drug users uh, that precipitated this outbreak. They have subsequently done phylogenetic analysis on 157 of the total isolates and demonstrated 99.7% uh, identity amongst that in that cluster, um, and that's under review for publication and should be um, out pretty soon. They also did some um, avidity testing and demonstrated that all these infections occurred within the previous six months, and that's actually quite consistent with the clinical and laboratory data that we gathered from the first 73 patients who we saw in the clinic. We, we had many patients who were reporting uh, symptoms that were consistent with acute HIV infection sometime in the past one to two months prior to being evaluated in the clinic. And, all, and on average, um, the CD4 counts and the viral loads were incredibly high, um, as we would see in early HIV infection. So CD4 counts around 650, and the average viral load was 272,000. So there were a lot of services that had to be implemented and started in order to contain this outbreak. And first and foremost was certainly surveillance to define the extent of this outbreak. And that included not only that contact tracing that was uh, uh, quite prominent and, and, and uh, forceful early on in the epidemic, but going door to door to reach those patients who otherwise were not going to come and seek health care. And then targeting high-risk populations. So the jail has uh, been has implemented universal HIV screening and has been doing so since nearly the beginning of this epidemic, which has been truly instrumental um, at engaging some of those otherwise very difficult to reach uh, patients. 
And then outreach programs for transient populations was also very necessary. There's one canning industry in town, and there are a lot of truckers who come through to drop off supplies or cans, um, and during that drop-off may stop and inject drugs or have um, uh, sex with commercial sex workers. And so those were p people who needed to be tested such that the outbreak would not go well beyond the, the borders of uh, Scott County. There was no on-site permanent uh, addiction treatment services in Austin, Indiana prior to this outbreak, and so that was a huge undertaking. Uh, and then harm reduction services, certainly the syringe exchange program and PrEP had to be instituted to help those who remained at high risk um, for HIV infection. And then, uh, of course, HIV treatment. So this was all a multi-pronged um, coordinated effort that the Indiana State Department of Health uh, put together and, and, and coordinated uh, pretty much on their own with the help from numerous partners. So ultimately the goal is viral load suppression and all these services that I have uh, shown here had to be implemented such that we could achieve viral suppression not only in each individual patient but certainly the community as a whole. So federal partners, the CDC, SAMHSA, HRSA participated, our State Department of Health, um, my partners and I from IU School of Medicine and then also the School of Public Health and then many local partners. So not just the providers there, but even um, some of those uh, less likely or less uh, traditional partners in, in, in Austin that, that's faith-based organizations because there's, there's almost a church on every corner in this town um, and many people from those churches wanted to help um, in their own way uh, to participate and, and help with the effort. And all that culminated really quite beautifully in what became known as the one-stop shop. And so this is the warehouse building uh, where the community outreach center uh, was established and, and people just came to call it the one-stop shop. And you can see this immediately off the highway. So it's located at the other end of town from that one-stop light uh, that I showed you. So patients could walk there. Um, they could get free rides um, from either the State Department, from uh, locals, um, or uh, through calling a free number. And this, this one-stop shop offered all the services that I have listed here. It was open seven days a week with extended evening hours so that patients could access it at any time and it was open to anybody in the community whether HIV infected um, or not. And in parentheses what I have here are the number of people who accessed each of these services through uh, just past that, the end of that emergency order that the governor instituted. And, and located in this one-stop shop was a syringe exchange program. So, you know, as an infectious disease uh, physician, I fully support a syringe exchange program. We know that these decrease the rate of transmission for communicable diseases, specifically hepatitis C and HIV, without increasing uh, drug use uh, patterns and, um, and, and habits. So, this was housed at the one-stop shop and is now permanently located at uh, where the new one-stop shop is uh, uh, in, in Austin. And participants who uh, enrolled in the syringe exchange program were issued unique ID cards. So in Indiana, it is a felony to possess on your person a needle with the intent to use it as not prescribed by a physician. So with these ID cards, uh, participants were able to demonstrate that they were able to legally carry that syringe um, from, from the needle exchange program, or syringe exchange program, I, I use those interchangeably, I'm sorry, it's not what I meant to do, um, to their home. And they went through a weekly exchange with a very generous one-in, one-plus-out policy where they were given sterile syringes but also wound kits uh, and education about how to safely inject to decrease the rates of other complications uh, such as skin and soft tissue infections and even bacteremias. 
And then they were also referred to health and substance abuse services that were housed in the same location. The syringe exchange program had not only an on-site location in that uh, one-stop shop, but they had a mobile unit, uh, which was otherwise known as the health department car. Uh, so once a day, the two nurses who ran this program would go out sometimes in the middle of the afternoon or early evening into the neighborhoods where uh, the majority of uh, people who inject drugs live, uh, literally roll down the window and shout out because it was usually a nice day, hey, do you know anybody who needs clean needles? I have them for free. And so through both of those measures, um, at this time there are over 350 people who are participating in the syringe exchange program uh, that is ongoing and has um, been uh, dispensing uh, thousands of needles per week. So Monita Patel and her colleagues also from the CDC did a really nice analysis of the first 100 people uh, who participated in the syringe exchange program over that three-month period of the uh, emergency order. And what they were able to demonstrate is what we would expect, uh, so that uh, such that the number of people who are sharing syringes shown here on the first line decreased and the medium frequency of syringe reuse decreased as well. Uh, this is kind of a gasp uh, sort of story, but, but people would reuse needles so many times that they were dulled so that they would have to file them down because it was very difficult for them to obtain needles. And, and uh, we heard many stories of needles breaking off in arms. So. Um, because they were reused so many times. So, so this was really a good step in the right direction as well. And then um, as time went on, we gained the trust not only of people who are participating in the, in the needle exchange or syringe exchange program, uh, but also the rest of the community so that uh, more and more people were engaged. Uh, and one of the keys to instituting this was really to get uh, behind us and get buy-in from uh, the law enforcement, the local law enforcement. And, and once we had that, um, this was up and running very, very quickly. Also essential uh, during an outbreak uh, of HIV due to injection drug use is rehabilitation services. So I've already mentioned that prior to this outbreak, there was none, uh, no, none, no such service um, on the ground in Austin like this. So. Uh, both inpatient and outpatient services were expanded in the area and people who are HIV infected or who were high risk negatives were preferentially um, given treatment um, in inpatient services and there's now a permanent location in Austin that's co-located with where the syringe exchange program is. And that building is actually in immediate vicinity to the neighborhood where the highest concentration of people who inject drugs live. Medication-assisted therapy, this absolutely works when combined with HIV treatment for more successful outcomes for patients, and so increased access to naloxone was certainly um, begun early on in the stages of the epidemic, but also training programs for buprenorphine and naltrexone were offered throughout the uh, emergency order for any uh, provider who was interested in uh, giving this and prescribing it to patients. So when patients got tested, they were either HIV negative, at which point they were uh, referred to harm reduction services, or if they were HIV infected, they were connected with a care coordinator uh, and then referred for antiretroviral therapy. Well, prior to this outbreak, the closest provider offering HIV care was 20 miles away. So the first 10 patients who were diagnosed were referred to that Ryan White-funded clinic uh, 20 miles away, which ended up being about a 40-minute ride. As the epidemic grew in proportion, it became really quite obvious that that was not going to be a sustainable option for this town. And so it's at that point that the State Department of Health asked us at IU School of Medicine to provide uh, HIV care. And so a little word to the wise, 
when your deputy state health commissioner who's in charge of organizing this massive response says, hey, why don't we go have drinks and talk about how we can uh, start an HIV clinic, savor that drink because you're not going to have time to do that again for quite a while. So we sat down and, and conceptualized how this clinic would be run. And ultimately, the goal was treatment as prevention. So to decrease not only each individual's viral load, but the community as a whole, because that's how this epidemic would be contained. And in order to do so, we envisioned a weekly free clinic with a two-physician model, because we wanted to accommodate not only every patient who made an appointment, but anybody who walked in. We did not want to turn away for HIV treatment, and we did not want to keep them waiting. At the clinic, HIV testing would be offered, but so would treatment and education. And if anybody tested negative, they would be offered PrEP if they were interested in it. And we had six days because we thought we're going to have this first clinic on March 31st. So the clinic actually occurred in borrowed space from that one uh, uh, family practice office that I showed you the picture of. And so we had to engage and work with a lot of the local uh, providers. And, and it was a really fantastic opportunity because they were able to offer some very community-specific knowledge and really help each individual patient. Um, sometimes those difficult-to-find patients, they would know they're staying at the friend's cousin's house and go out and get them and bring them into clinic. Um, and then, such as in the case of Mr. B, tell us he'll be here, so don't worry about it. Uh, he's coming in for treatment. And then it was also necessary to identify each practitioner's unique role that he or she wanted to have, because not all the uh, people who were in town wanted to offer HIV treatment in that family practice office. So some uh, practitioners wanted to be able to participate in HIV testing, others in counseling, others were more interested in behavioral and mental rehab or uh, rehabilitation. And, uh, and, and then those who wanted to participate in actually treating HIV. And it's only by putting all this together and really emphasizing the unique roles that each of those practitioners wanted to have that we could envision uh, not only that immediate HIV clinic, but a long-term sustainable treatment paradigm in this town. So for the clinic, we went old school, and we couldn't take our EMR from IU down uh, to Austin, so we went with paper uh, uh, intake forms that were really comprehensive and allowed us to get to know the patients quite well. Um, and we prioritized in this clinic HIV treatment with deferring all those really other important uh, things that we address for our HIV patients, such as pneumococcal vaccination, which we know our patients are at increased risk for, um, and other medical problems which would be addressed later on down the road because we wanted to get as many people into treatment as quickly as possible. And then we made educational materials for HIV specific for each visit. Uh, so you're diagnosed with HIV, you're starting antiretrovirals, are you adherent to, to medications? Because guaranteed, seeing one patient and making an impact on them meant that they went home with that messaging that you uh, ha had discussed with them and told the entire family who they were staying with, hopefully thereby getting more patients to come and see you the next week. And then uniquely, pharmacy education, I, you know, I work in a Ryan White funded clinic, so I'm really quite fortunate that I have a multidisciplinary approach and we have a pharmacist who can meet with our patients and go over those uh, side effects and necessary adherence to antiretrovirals. But this pharmacy education that I have listed here, um, I mean educating the, the two pharmacies who are in town. So if you walk out that clinic door, 10 steps to the left is one pharmacy, or run across the street over those railroad tracks is the other pharmacy. So these were two pharmacists and their technicians who had to uh, very quickly increase their armamentarium because they would be providing antiretrovirals for a large number of people, and they'd never done so before. So our ID pharmacists came down and had in-services for each of these pharmacies. 
This is how streamlined the HIV care was. So this is quite the elementary slide, and I left it as such without any um, uh, doctoring because we, we were really quite simplistic in our approach because what we wanted to do was if we had five or ten patients who showed up at once, our deputy state health commissioner, who's an ER pediatrician, said, you give me something I can follow, I'll start treating HIV patients with you. It's, it, it's okay. So patients were enrolled in uh, insurance, and they got only the baseline labs, so certainly not the gamut of tests that we get for all of our patients who come to us for the first time in an HIV clinic, but only those that would allow us to uh, follow this very simple uh, decision tree. And there were not nine choice of, choices of antiretrovirals, like uh, some of you, like we saw for the panel discussion, but only two. And we chose these for a few reasons. A, they're really well tolerated. They have fantastic viral kinetics. And then very importantly, they didn't have any drug-drug interactions, certainly with oxymorphone, but also with medication-assisted medication treatment, which we would expect for some of our patients in the near future. And then ultimately also with the, uh, hepatitis C drugs that we would envision using in the near future. There are a lot of themes that came out uh, in HIV care with a wide range of knowledge bases, uh, as emphasized by the story of Mr. B and his wife, and we had to really assure privacy for patients because this is a small town where everybody knows everybody. And we were successful in this because this is a quote from one of the patients we saw the first week who uh, went on to spread the word that, hey, these HIV docs are okay, come and see them and get treated. Another aspect that was really unique during this outbreak is we were able to provide jail care. Um, so at any given time, 10 to 20 percent of the HIV-infected population in Austin is incarcerated, usually for very minor, uh, petty, petty reason, or minor reasons. Um, and we actually are coordinating with the jail and visit the jail every month in order to uh, see patients, evaluate them, initiate them on therapy if they haven't already been, um, and then continue their antiretroviral therapy if they have started it already. Fantastically, this DOT approach uh, ensures that everybody in jail has an undetectable viral load, uh, but uh, upon release, many people, um, as we know for patients, uh, for people who uh, are incarcerated, have a very high rate of recidivism, um, and continuity of care is a challenge that we're facing. So this is where we were at the end of the fall um, last year um, in that continuum of care with the numbers of people who have been diagnosed and ultimately treated. So certainly nowhere near that 90% um, that is our goal uh, worldwide or in, in here in the states um, with only about 32% of the patients who've been diagnosed um, virally suppressed. If we include some of those patients who are incarcerated with that DOT approach essentially we, we approach 52% um, at this point in April. We have ongoing transmissions that we're seeing, so certainly treatment as prevention is doing some, uh, but not the whole job, and, and, part, and those other harm reduction measures uh, still need to be amplified. And one area where we're focusing on is PrEP. So there's been very little uptake. The community and people who are at risk are not very well aware of this. Uh, we know from data from Thailand, from the randomized study that was done there, that PrEP does reduce the risk of HIV transmission by as much as 70%. We've trained all providers in the area and surrounding areas to provide PrEP, but there's not much buy-in from them uh, for people who inject drugs, uh, mostly for uh, sexual partners. So we'd really like to amplify that. We've streamlined um, PrEP uh, algorithms, um, and then not only streamlined them, but specified them to locations where high-risk patient populations are being evaluated. 
Lots of, lesson lots of lessons learned, and I'll just summarize it quite quickly. So the community and providers need to be aware of what's going on with respect to injection drug use, HIV, and hepatitis C rates, because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So to know what's going on in your community, offer that multidisciplinary care, um, and then uh, ultimately be able to have sustainability planning um, as, um, as time goes on. Things that we're still facing uh, with this epidemic is that we have not nearly engaged all the patients we need to in care, let alone retain them all in care to achieve suppressed viral loads. And one area we're really focusing on now is uh, with jail and those pa patients who are seeking rehabilitation services, whether inpatient or outpatient, and still continuing to expand those local services. Um, because they, they truly are stretched to the limit at this point. Um, and so providing additional resources for people who are local uh, such, they can such that they can have sustainable infrastructure for the long run uh, is, is a continued challenge. So obviously there were hundreds of people uh, who were involved in this response and continue to participate. Uh, and I've simply named those uh, organizations of which they are members uh, here. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was a very uh, educational presentation. Um, so first question, any uh, information on how uh, the oxymorphone was acquired by people in that community? Yes, that's always a very curious point. So um, there is a well-known trafficking route from uh, the southern United States all the way up through Detroit. Uh, interstate 65, which is uh, the main interstate that connects all these cities, um, is the route um, where it is trafficked through. And there have been drug busts made, but the supply continues. Okay, a little political question. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, allegedly, Indiana ranks last in public health spending, and up until this event, your governor uh, banned needle exchange programs mm -hmm. and wondered, are other counties now prepared to offer them aside from Scott County and has the legislature approved this or are yeah. these simply emergency actions? Yeah, great question. So uh, Indiana ranks ninth in opioid prescribing regimen um, volumes and we're really quite high for the number of opioid related deaths. And so obviously it's not simply Scott County who's in danger of such an epidemic. Uh, there are currently five counties. The legislation, legislation has changed. Uh, counties may apply for syringe exchange programs when they recognize either high rates of injection drug use, high rates of hepatitis C, or high rates of HIV. They apply for a syringe exchange program by holding a public health hearing, uh, which anyone may participate in. There does not need to be a majority vote that says, yes, we want this, but it's, it must be a hearing where everyone is afforded a chance to talk. And then they apply for approval through the state health department. So this is um, our state health commissioner um, is an anesthesiology and the anesthesiologist and the uh, deputy state health commissioner and ER physician. So um, they have a lot of medical background and certainly significant experience in order to recognize that, that these syringe exchange programs work. Um, and I believe the total number is five counties. It may be six, um, but I don't know for sure about that six yet. It seems to me that 
after you already have high rates of those things, it's, it's a little late. bit too yes. late. So there are still problems, but um, okay. we're, we're moving forward with what, what we can so far. <laughs> All right. What literacy level was your patient? were your patient education materials aimed toward in that community? Uh, seventh and eighth grade. Any other questions for Dr. Janowitz? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much.